Hi, I'm Elise Lunen, co-host with Gwyneth of the Goop Podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Deborah Mash, and my conversation with her was fascinating. Before we get to it, I want to thank our friends at Teslar Watches who helped make today's episode possible. The tech team at Goop is always scouting out the latest and greatest productivity tools, and they recently tested out the newest creation by Timex, the Teslar Watch. It contains a chip that syncs up to the battery and is designed to mimic Earth's natural frequency. This kind of technology is intended to help keep the body's own electromagnetic field in balance. To learn more about the Teslar Watch and Timex's new innovative technology, head to teslarwatches.com. Enter code GOOP20 for 20% off. That's code GOOP20. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest, and I'll come back after their conversation to answer a question from one of you. If you have a question you'd like me to get into in our next round of Ask Me Anything, send it to us at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. All right, over to Elise. Deborah Mash is a professor of neurology and pharmacology at the Miller School of Medicine and the University of Miami. She has been studying the effects of ibogaine since 1992. Ibogaine is a psychedelic compound derived from the bark of a shrub native to Western Central Africa. Traditionally, it's been used as a powerful addiction disruptor, specifically for heroin and other opioids. Today, we're talking about Dr. Mash's journey to getting Ibogaine studied, funded, and tested, and why it's been so challenging. She'll explain exactly how Ibogaine works and what the future of Ibogaine looks like. Dr. Mash believes this has been some of the best work of her life. Ibogaine is a powerful addiction interrupter. It does give people a window where they don't have the cravings, they have diminished desire to use, they're not racing out the door Mm -hmm. to go get high again. So that gives them an opportunity to look at their life in a way to say, well, it's going to be different this time. Okay, let's get to my chat with Deborah Mash. So... I met you many years ago when we were looking into Ibogaine for heroin addiction, opioid addiction, and and how revelatory, yet potentially dangerous if administered in the wrong hands, the practice was. Like, we were looking at all the clinics that were, you know, going in Mexico, et cetera, and we were properly cautioned, like, you know, proceed with caution, like, not, you can't just, people shouldn't just be rolling into an Ibogaine clinic without a medical staff. People need to be, um, because it can have heart implications. And so I spoke to you. Can you sort of take us through your career, how you came to this understanding of this drug, and 
the research that you've been doing at the University of Miami and, and how you've been trying to move it forward? This has been an extremely long journey for me. My journey with Ibogaine began in 1993 when I was an as- associate professor at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine, and Miami-Dade was hit very hard with the front-end loading of the cocaine epidemic. Because of our close proximity to Central and South America and the transshipment of cocaine through the Bahamian Corridor, we felt the impact of cocaine addiction first. HIV-AIDS, cocaine-related deaths, cocaine-related excited delirium, crack babies, communities torn apart, increases in violence, and, of course, many young people who have never experimented with cocaine before who maybe tried a couple of lines of powder, now smoke crack for the first time and find themselves in a horribly intractable pattern of addiction. I was working with the Miami-Dade Medical Examiner's Department, and we discovered cocaethylene, which is a drug that's formed when you drink and use cocaine in combination. It's transesterification of cocaine and alcohol. And cocaine and booze is one of the most popular two-way drug combination. People like the high and the low. Mm So when we discovered this and we presented this for the first time at the Society for Neuroscience, we got big publicity, and they called us the Miami Vice Metabolite. At that point in time, we were splashed across every newspaper. The AP Wire Service took us up, and we were getting so much publicity, it was was really quite overwhelming. I got invited to go out and speak by the then president of the University of Miami, Tad Foote, at the Coalition for a Drug-Free America. And I was talking about our work on cocaine and alcohol and this new metabolite. And a a man came up to me at the the podium after my lecture and said, Dr. Mesh, I want to talk to you about this drug from Africa that can be used to break the cycle of addiction. People can wean off their drugs, hardcore drugs like heroin and cocaine. And I listened to him for a few minutes, and he's going on and on, and he's very emphatic about getting this information to me. And I I think I was rather abrupt, actually, on that day, because I'm listening to this, I'm like, what? It's something from Africa, from a plant, you know? And here I was, you know, getting all this uh, stardom with our co-Kathleen. So I really said, you know, sir, I've never heard of that before. Thank you for this information. But you see all these people here wanting to talk to me. I, I've got to answer a few more questions. That was the first time I heard about Ibogaine. Mm. I go to the college on the problems of drug dependence, and I'm talking about my work. And I'm kind of, by now, this is several months later, I'm kind of bored with my work, and I'm sick of my story. (laughs) Our work was, uh, you know, we'd already been there, done that, and I wanted to move on. And I wasn't well prepared for the meeting, so I said, well, here's this meeting on cocaine, and I don't even know what's being presented. I'm going to go sit in the back of the room, look at my program, and figure it out. So this man from professor from Albany by the name of Stan Glick goes up to the microphone and starts talking about this drug from Africa that will make rats that are self-administering high with high rates of responding cocaine and heroin and they stop. And I go, "What? That's that same drug from Africa." Mm. Now I've heard it twice. And when I returned from that meeting, I had one of those old recording-type phones, and I played back the message, and it was Howard Lutzoff, 
the man who made the seminal discovery of Ibogaine many decades earlier, contacting me because he wanted to use our work on cocaethylene for his combination of use patent that he was filing. Mm. So when I got him on the phone, I said, wait, 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 wait. You're Howard Lotsoff. You're the man behind Ibogaine. What is it? How does it work? What's the mechanism of action? How can I learn more about this? My curiosity had been piqued. And Howard invited me to go see it with my own eyes. And that's what I did. And there begins the journey. The journey. And so in my understanding of Ibogaine, it's, it's a shrub from Gabon or a root and that it ha- it works in multiple ways. So it's a psychedelic, and people, you can, you can fact-check me on all of this, people at active addicts who take it. It's like while ayahuasca is called the grandmother, people call it the grandfather. They go on a 24-hour, sometimes longer, incredibly hard, grueling trip, a, a life review that in of itself is, in, I'm sure, one of the most powerful and extreme experiences of someone's life, they often have the same sort of violent illness like ayahuasca trips. But then after, there's also a mechanism in Ibogaine that blocks the receptor cells, and so they emerge without cravings and without having gone through withdrawal symptoms, and then they have, what, like three to six months of a runway to re-engineer their life and create better habits and move and lose their dealer's number. Is that kind of what happens? So that's a kind of a, a, a succinct overview of Ibogaine's mechanism of action. Yeah. And why does it work? I mean, we're out to prove that it does work, but certainly there's a lot of information out there from personal narratives that suggest and actually provide uh, stunning evidence that Ibogaine is a very powerful addiction interrupter. Mm -hmm. So as a scientist, that's what we've been working on for a long time is to try to understand what is unique about this molecule? Why is this molecule unique in class? The use of the term psychedelic, Ibogaine is very different than DMT-containing psychedelic brews like ayahuasca. Mm -hmm. It's very different than MDMA or ecstasy. It is also very different than LSD and psilocybin. So it doesn't fit into those three boxes. It actually sits in box number four by itself. Mm -hmm. So Ibogaine, coming from Mother Nature, Mm -hmm. is an indole alkaloid that looks a little bit like serotonin, It also has parts of the molecule that look a little bit like it would act on the cholinergic nervous system. So it's hitting multiple transmitter circuits in the brain. And what we think is that it's this mix, this combined mix of molecular targets in the brain that helps bring about a very rapid reset, not only on opioid tolerance, but also the ability to reset the circuits that that fire mm-hmm. off normal normal baselines when you go through withdrawal. So when you take somebody off of opiates, for example, it's not life-threatening, but it's very uncomfortable. It's very painful. It's very frightening. Mm-hmm. People don't want to experience opioid withdrawal. It's hard. It's mm-hmm. hard to kick yeah. a habit of opiate dependency. Are the visions part of the process? 
or can you just have the pharmacology? Can you do away with the visualization phase of the drug experience and just have the molecular targets get right. normalized and reset in a way in brain. And this is something that we've been studying because ibogaine gets converted to an active metabolite called noribogaine through the liver. And both ibogaine and noribogaine has a distinct mix of molecular targets. The difference with the noribogaine is that it doesn't have the psychotropic effects. Mm -hmm. There's no creative visualization phase that you get with Ibogaine. When you think about why people become addicted, addiction is an acquired disease. If you never smoke a cigarette, if you don't do crack, if you don't go get hooked on opiates, you're not addicted. Mm -hmm. So we all carry risk for, for different diseases. You could have genes or risk alleles in your DNA that put you in harm's way when it comes to toxin exposure for cancer, for example. But maybe you'll never get cancer because you've never been exposed to that toxin. Right. Maybe you live a healthy life, maybe you eat well, and you know you don't have that one-two punch. Right. Most diseases are epigenetic, right? It's our Most diseases yeah. are epigenetic, and we're learning more and more about that. And actually, I'm participating in some very large National Institute on Drug Abuse-funded studies to look at the epigenetic changes in the DNA that occur in the human brain after death from people who died from opioid intoxication deaths. Mm. This is a very important study that's ongoing with lead investigators from Case Western, from RTI, and from the Icon School of Medicine, and I'm privileged to collaborate with them on that. So we're, we're keenly aware that it's not going to be just the inherited risk, but mm -hmm. there's going to be a gene-environment interaction, as for most diseases. Right. People use drugs for a lot of different reasons, mm -hmm. and we know that for some people, they feel normal for the first time. So that's the self-medication, whether you're walking around with a quart low of dopamine and you do that first cigarette and all of a sudden you feel a euphoriant high or you drink that martini and, wow, I feel clear. It's like a stimulant and I feel good. Or you take that opiate mm -hmm. and you experience what people describe as the velvet drug. For me... I don't like opiates. Mm -hmm. They're dysphoric for me. They make me sick. I don't feel good on them. I don't like them. So the probability that I would get addicted to an opioid is probably pretty low. But for someone else, and especially people who take the heroin, they, they really say this is the most intense, oozy, comfortable feeling I have ever experienced in my life. And, of course, it's a dream. It's a dream state, mm -hmm. the opium dream. So pe some people really like it. So there's drug liking, self-medication. Mm -hmm. I feel better when I'm on them. And then also people are medicating traumas, yeah. life traumas. And many people, you know, experience trauma in early childhood and adulthood, can have multiple traumas. There can be traumas that you've inherited from your, from your mother and your grandmother and your father. Yeah. That come through, the, you know, the inherited epigenetics. So we don't begin to understand all of that. And some people have resilience. You're born with resilience genes. So even though you've tasted some drugs and you've partied with them, you're not going to go off the deep end. Right. 
So when I think about addiction and having had the opportunity and the privilege, and really is a humbling experience to work with people who have suffered, who suffer mm-hmm. with the acquired disease of addiction and want to get out of it and yeah. can't. And despite their best efforts, I mean, these are people who may have tried to get off of drugs four or five or more times right. and can't break the cycle. Ibogaine is a powerful addiction interrupter. It does give people a window where they don't have the cravings. They have diminished desire to use. They're not racing out the door mm-hmm. to go get high again. So that gives them an opportunity to look at their life in a way to say, well, it's going to be different this time. The visions for some are transformative. Mm -hmm. And that's part of this whole renaissance now about looking at psychedelic drugs as medications, whether it's for intractable depression or as an addiction interrupter. This is an opportunity for people to get in touch with their, their, not only their brain, but their behavior. Yeah. And there's a great psychologist, Michael Mersinich, who's written written on this, but but to cut it short and make it simplified, neurons that fire together wire together. So can we unlearn mm-hmm. bad behaviors? If you put yourself, if you reframe it, if you change up your cognitive map, if you rewrite your own personal narrative. I'm not an addict. Mm -hmm. I'm a healthy person. I don't need the drugs. I don't need the alcohol. Mm -hmm. I can move through this. Then you've engaged the frontal lobes, Mm -hmm. the decision-making part of the brain, the executive part of the brain, and you're not locked into this intractable limbic system that says, I got to get high. Right. And rutted thinking and suddenly you're, yeah. I think Michael Pollan does a good job of describing it as sort of suddenly, you know, like this, I think he talks about it as sled tracks in the snow. Suddenly you're able to sort of get out of that well-trod path and re, re-engage your brain. And so in your work, I, wanna, I want you to take us back to when you actually sort of worked at a clinic and watched and had this experience of being with addicts and watching them progress through this treatment. And then your work... The last time I spoke to you, which was now many years ago, you were working to isolate that. You were looking, because it was so hard to probably sell the FDA on this idea of this massive psychic trip and what it would do to resolve trauma or whatever it might, whatever the mechanism of healing that psychedelics offers, you were trying to isolate the actual, the norebogaine, right, to, to block the receptors and allow people to skip withdrawal and get clean. So can you take us through those days in the clinic and then and what, what that experience is like and then where you are with your research? In 1993, the FDA gave us the full – they gave us a green light to go forward and test Ibogaine in the United States. Mm-hmm. At that time, they limited patients to people who had taken Ibogaine before. As there was concerns for safety. Again, not many Schedule I drugs mm-hmm. were approved by the FDA for testing in humans. So we were given permission to do a Phase I study of safety and pharmacokinetics. 
You take the drug, how does your body handle the drug? What is the blood level? What's a safe blood level? How does your body convert it? And yes, we were very interested in noribogaine, the metabolite of ibogaine that's formed in the liver because we thought it might have a distinct pharmacology and might be a new molecule Mm -hmm. that could be patented and that big pharma would be interested in. So that was the kind of the dialectical tension we had between ibogaine and noribogaine. Mm-hmm. We already had information that ibogaine worked. I saw it with my own eyes when I went to Amsterdam, and I saw three men get detoxed with ibogaine for the first time. One was on 100 milligrams of methadone, chipping on heroin, and, and using Xanax, which is a benzodiazepine, on the side. Second young man was banging back a lot of heroin. He was a a musician, a very talented young man, but completely out of control with his heroin habit. Third young man was freebasing cocaine, and a lot of it. Had attention deficit disorder, self-medicating with a psychostimulant, Mm -hmm. and really off the deep end. And I watched all three of them take the Ibogaine and the I walked away from that experience with an awareness that I don't know what this drug does, but this is a profound observation because here was two men who went through no withdrawals, none, one on a long-acting opiate, one on a short-acting opiate, and neither of them broke withdrawals. And I was by their bed the entire night. I was with them the next day, the next morning, that afternoon. And I saw them go through this Ibogaine experience and come out the other side changed. Clear thinking, hungry, showered, shaved, and ready to get on with life and, and make something different. It's what we call in the, in the addiction field pre-contemplative, contemplative, ready for change. Mm. Ibogaine made them ready for change. Mm. That was dramatic, and I'll go to my grave with that experience. The young man who had battled cocaine had a little bit more difficult time, but also showed benefit from the Ibogaine. Mm -hmm. It was an addiction interrupter for him, too. I went as quickly as I could to my colleagues at the National Institute on Drug Abuse because I wanted to share this. And my, my naivete at the time was I thought, oh, my Everyone's going to want want to know about this. This is fantastic. And so I shared every bit of information that I had. And this is 1995? 1995 was when we went back. 1993 was the first time we go to the FDA. Okay. And the FDA voted to let us go forward in Ibogaine Veterans. In 1995, I went back to the FDA, and we had a kind of a start and a stop there because there had been an Howard Letzoff had an Ibogaine death. Mm. A young woman, German woman, healthy, otherwise very healthy, died because she had accidentally been given too much Ibogaine. Mm-hmm. So when we heard about that, we immediately reported that. That wasn't on our side, but we heard about it. We had to report it to the, the health authorities, which we did, of course. And I worked with the mother of that young woman to get an autopsy report so we could provide that to the FDA, which we did. The FDA took that information and some other new information that we provided, and they gave us a full green light to go forward at that time in cocaine-dependent patient volunteers Mm. to work up the safety and the pharmacokinetics and move through phase one to get to a phase two. 
The problem for me was I couldn't fund it. Mm. I tried. I couldn't fund it. I wrote grants, which is what I've done my entire adult life is write grants to the NIH. I was very unlucky, and despite the fact that I've held uninterrupted NIH funding for mm, over 30 years, but I couldn't get it for the Ibogaine studies. I couldn't get any funding for any Ibogaine study, not animal studies, not human studies. I just had no luck. Is that because hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Americans had not yet died from oxy? I mean, why, why, the, why, why the disinterest in something so promising? You know, I've struggled with that question for a long time. Why did I fail in getting the funding? Well, I think there's a few different answers here. First of all, Howard Lutzoff held the intellectual property for Ibogaine. Mm. We were academic investigators. We had no license on the drug, if you will. So anything we did, he would stand to benefit, and he controlled the drug supply to get what is called good manufacturing practice drug product to put into a human through a health agency, whether it's Health Canada or FDA or Europe or elsewhere. You have to meet very strict criteria for them to give you approval. So there's a big hurdle to get past to get FDA permission. Now, I had FDA permission, so I got past that hurdle. But now you got to pay for the clinical trials, and clinical trials cost $100 million up to $800 million, depending on who you listen to. And central nervous system drugs, of course, are very hard to develop because mm-hmm. people are complicated. Right. You're developing a vaccine. That's, a, that's going to be a blockbuster drug. You develop Viagra. That's a blockbuster drug. You develop Skyrizi, that's going to be an amazingly blockbuster drug. But now you're trying to work on addiction, which is a smaller market share. Mm-hmm. So that's a hurdle. Right. And then the NIH, who spearheads and brings about great discoveries, wants to see translation from the bench to the patient's bedside, but They pay for very few clinical trials. Mm -hmm. Some early-stage clinical trials, yes, they'll put some seed money in. But you have to have a partnership with pharma, biotech, or the private sector, or you don't go forward. We'll get back to Deborah Mash in just a second. When we think of wellness, our minds usually go to yoga classes, good sleep routines, and meditation. Technology gets a bad rap, but the right kind, when used correctly, can enhance both our productivity and our well-being. One cool innovation at the intersection of wellness, technology, and fashion is the new Tesla watch designed by the team at Timex. It uses a special technology in a turbo chip that is designed to match the Earth's natural frequency. The goal? to hopefully help keep the body's own electromagnetic field in balance. There are Tesla styles for both men and women, which you can find in their online shop. To learn more about wearable wellness and Tesla technology, head to teslarwatches.com. Get 20% off using code GOOP20. That's GOOP20. Balance can be elusive. I work at finding it every day, and a lot of days I don't get it quite right. 
Sakara is a wellness company that was founded to explore how we can create a healthy balance in various aspects of our lives. They believe that with balance comes clarity and freedom, and that this can all begin with how we feed our bodies. Sakara believes in the ancient healing power of plants, eating vegetables that make up every color in the rainbow, selecting good fats, and paying attention to nutrient density in your body's own intelligence. Their meals are designed to nourish and support a healthy mind and body. Sakara offers an organic nutrition program that provides fresh meals, teas, and supplements. It gets delivered right to your door with no meal prep required. And you can customize your weekly schedule to best fit your lifestyle. All of their meals are organic, plant-based, gluten-free, dairy-free, non-GMO, and contain no refined sugar. To try Sakara's organic meals and functional supplements, head to sakara.com goop. Right now, you can get 20% off of your entire order by using code GOOP20. That's S-A-K-A-R-A and use code GOOP20. Back to my chat with Deborah Mash. Ibogaine is a drug that allows you to de- end your dependency on other drugs, right? It's something you theoretically would do once. There's no, and then you're on the other side. So there's not, you're not also introducing a drug that people are going to take for the rest of their life. So the idea is, is Ibogaine a cure? No, no, it's, no, no, right. no, no. Ibogaine is not a cure. There's no cure for addiction. I wish there was. But so far, there is none. So the fact that you take Ibogaine and you don't need any follow-on medication doesn't sound like it's going to be a well-marketed drug. Mm-hmm. Now, fast forward today where we have sage therapeutics. Mm-hmm. And work that was originally done by Dr. Steve Paul when he was at the NIH with allopregnanolone, which is a GABA reset, the inhibitory neurotransmitter GABA, brings about a very rapid reset in GABA, which works fantastic for women who suffer the intractable postpartum depression. Mm -hmm. Very exciting. And that's go in the hospital, take the drug, pay X amount of money to have that medically monitored exposure to the drug to reset your neurochemistry and you come out of it a healed person. That's very similar model mm-hmm. to exactly the way we envision Ibogaine to be used today. Yeah. Take the drug under proper medical monitor by trained clinicians, provide the drug product for a certain price, and then have patients ready for treatment. Yeah. So we already know that when patients take Ibogaine and go into rehab, their outcomes will be better. Right. We learned that in the St. Kitts experience. Right. So I think, again, you know, when we were, when I was there championing this drug for the treatment of addiction, we didn't know as much as we do now. Mm-hmm. So now with, this, with the renaissance to use these medicines for lack of a better term, psychedelic medicines like psilocybin, Mm -hmm. like MDMA for trauma, Mm -hmm. ketamine Mm -hmm. for depression. We can use intractable depression. We can use these molecules now in a way, not only as adjuvants to psychotherapy, but also to bring about these rapid neurochemical resets. And the brain, we've learned so much from fundamental neuroscience about the plasticity in the brain. Mm-hmm. Our brain is, is dynamic. We can remodel circuits. 
So when you, we, you talk about those, those tracks in the snow and making those same, going down those same tracks in the snow, well, yeah, we can break out of that OCD loop, mm-hmm. that compulsive use of a drug or change up a compulsive behavior or get out of our intractable depression, which is like being buried in the mud. Yeah. We don't even begin to understand how bad that feels, how debilitating that is for some people or intractable anxiety and fear. So in 1995, you cannot get, you can't get past stage two, even though you've managed because you you don't have the money. So, and then when I spoke to you, you were still looking for the money. So where are we now? Like what, is there a day when people will be able to get Abigail? We got the money to go offshore when I went offshore, and that was bold and risky and risky for me as an academic investigator because, you know, academics don't like to do things sideways. Right. You have to do it by the book, right? So going offshore was was looked at that I was maverick in this, that regard. This is when you did the St. Kitts Clinic. This is when I, went off to, when I went off to the Caribbean and got approval by from the prime minister, a doctor, Douglas, who was also the PM in St. Kitts, and was fortunate to work with a stunning group of qualified investigators. The late Frank Irvin, who has since passed away, pioneer, visionary, biological psychiatrist. We had so many great people down there, and we were able to do what I consider some of the best work of my life. Mm -hmm. What a privilege and what an honor to be able to work with those patients and with my colleagues. And we published our data from St. Kitts in 2018. Fast forward, I started with my colleague, Steve Gorlin, Demerex, to advance the metabolite of Ibogaine, Mm -hmm. again, thinking that Big Pharma would shy away from the Schedule One drug, but would be more interested in an active metabolite without the visions that had new intellectual property to protect it. Right. So we we could package that and have a new approach for treating drug dependency disorders with this low-dose formulation of noribogaine. Today, I believe that ibogaine can be developed as a detox for medical management of withdrawal, as an addiction interrupter, as a transformative therapy to help patients break out of their intractable cycle of drug dependency. So intact. Ibogaine as Ibogaine. Ibogaine as Ibogaine. I I came back into the company. I took back over Demrex in 2017 because I I had to finish what I started. Mm -hmm. I had to finish what I started, and I stepped away from the University of Miami. I left that academic career behind, and I said a prayer and said, all right, God, all in. I'm all in. We're going to finish what I started, and I'm going to go for this. So in 2017, I went back to the prior board of the company, voted the proxies, put in a new board, brought in some new talent, and I said, this time we're going to bring both drug products forward. We're going to bring in Ibogaine, go back, get Ibogaine back in front of the regulatory authorities, and we'll also revisit Ibogaine to see if noribogaine can be used in a low-dose formulation as a pill patch or a depot as a short add-on therapy after the ibogaine detox to help extend that window Mm -hmm. in patients during early recovery. 
And that's where Demerex is. And the good news is that we have forged a joint venture with Atai Life Sciences and their incredibly talented group of regulatory specialists and medical advisors. And these are people who have an, an incredible track record developing molecules. And they've taken on mental health issues where big pharma has completely abandoned mm -hmm. new molecule development for serious mental health disorders, it's these types of companies that are going to bring about the next, the next wave of drugs mm -hmm. to help our society heal. And so, in, so then do you go back? I'm assuming that the FDA, since it's not 1995 anymore, then do you have to go back and start at the beginning and get them to reapprove clinical trials and... We need to go back in front of the health authorities, mm -hmm. and we're preparing now to, re, to go back in to present our materials, our documents. Today, working with either the FDA or Health Canada or the European regulators, it's a new, it's a new program. Yeah. So there's even more material and more information that you have to prepare to convince the regulators to let you go forward, but we know a lot more about Ibogaine than we've ever known before. There have been many publications, mm -hmm. the academic literature now, the peer review literature has many publications from different groups who, who have described the benefits and the risks of taking Ibogaine. My own work uh, forms a safety database, which has been audited and reviewed and other people have looked at it and said, yes, this is supportive of taking more of a fast track. Mm -hmm. And because of exactly what you said about where we are today, people are dying. Yeah. And, and, and families are wrecked. And, and we have babies being born addicted to opioids. Look at the neonatal opioid mm -hmm. syndrome the horror of that, and mothers who can't take care of their children, broken families, young people becoming addicted and going from Oxycontin to heroin to, to, to injecting heroin. I mean, the, the list goes on and on. And how many, how many times do we hear about somebody who died? Yeah. And how many more people have to die? And you have to imagine that the FDA feels somewhat responsible, I mean, in co-creating this crisis for America and that it's their responsibility to help solve it. I mean, they must be desperate for solutions. I believe the FDA is. And yeah. our experience, my experience personally uh, with the FDA was always very collaborative mm -hmm. and, and helpful. They, they were, the FDA was very good to me, very, very good to me as an academic investigator because, you know, I'm not coming in with all the uh, the armada of big pharma. I don't right. have that. I'm, I'm a simple, you know, academic saying, can we test this? So my experience with the FDA was very, very good. I think we need to go fast. Yeah. And that's what we want to do. And now and in our joint venture with with the Thai Life Sciences, we'll be able to do that. We'll be we will have the money and the resources, the the talent, because developing small molecules for whatever indication, is hard, very hard work. So give us some potential timelines. I know Canada, as you mentioned, is is much closer if it's not. I don't, Ibogaine might be unscheduled there. I know that they're aggressively trying to get it going. 
as well. So what's the potential timeline of this? Like when, when for people who are listening who suffer or know people who suffer, when do you think that this will be available? We are going to work very, very quickly. And Canada and Health Canada is an is a potentially very important partner for us mm-hmm. because, as you rightfully point out, they are they are taking the leadership in the world, and they've done this on medical marijuana and 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 testing marijuana products. So I'm optimistic that Canada could be a, a good partner to help us fast track ibogaine to make it available. Mm-hmm. Again, until you get into the clinic and you demonstrate that you can give the drugs safely. It will take time, mm-hmm. but I think we can move quickly towards an, an efficacy endpoint or what is called a proof of concept study where we can show the regulators that the drug can be given safely, that the benefits outweigh the risks, mm-hmm. and that this will help people. Yeah. And, the, you know, in conversations with Rick Doblin at MAPS and other people in the psychedelic movement and, and Ibogaine, I don't. Rick doesn't feel this way. He thinks it's one. It's the most important. You know, they're close on MDMA, but that ibogaine just it has to happen. But that there's also been this aversion or fear of putting it into testing because negative, bad, sometimes bad things happen. It has implications for some people's hearts. But if the proper product, like, and I understand that's what you guys are going to develop in a medical setting with proper monitoring. Do you imagine that that would be exceptionally rare? I do. I think yeah. that ibogaine can admi- be administered safely. They, you know, we had a lot of problems, and I've been very vocal on this. Yeah. You know, you had ibogaine being given in unsafe settings. Yeah. I feel bad about that because my own research and my own publications and the press conferences and all the things that I did to promote ibogaine, when I left St. Kitts, that created a vacuum. Right. And because we, we couldn't get traction in terms of developing it as a true medication, it went to the underground. Right. And people took Ibogaine in unsafe settings. And when you've got people who come in and they're using a whole bunch of drugs. Totally compromised, yeah. They're sick to begin with. You've got people who don't understand how to dose Ibogaine. They've never worked with Ibogaine. They've never measured it in blood. They have no training. Yeah. They may not even have a cardiac monitor. And you put somebody in a hotel room or somewhere here, there, or anywhere in these, you know, so pop-up clinics, so-called. They're not clinics. Right. There are not even medical personnel on site. And I've had the, the misfortune of reviewing a lot of the, the Ibogaine deaths. In fact, I've reviewed them all. Mm-hmm. And invariably— All that are known. All that are known and some that have not been reported. Yeah. Because people call me. Right. Families call me. Yeah. The death in South Africa, that's not in the medical literature. I was called in to help the family. Yeah. I reviewed. They gave me. The police gave me all the information. I saw the video. I reviewed it. Mm -hmm. It was horrific. There was no reason that man should have died. So, yes, Ibogaine can be given safely. But it's unlike other drugs like psilocybin, which have a very large therapeutic to toxic window Mm -hmm. where you're not going to get in trouble, Ibogaine has a more narrow window. So you have to dose it properly. 
You have to work in a safe dose range, and you have to be under medical monitor, and you have to be screened. Yeah. We got to know that your liver is healthy, that your heart is healthy, and that you're, you've told the truth about what drugs are on board at the time when you come into the clinic. Right. And you can do that in a medical setting. Totally. And then you can bring in all the ancillary support and all the people, all the therapists you can help integrate and get at and help, I guess, make sense of that life journey and the, that unearthed trauma, which I think is, you know, you have to, you have to heal that, too, for most, for most people. It's extremely important. I mean, again, Ibogaine is not a cure. It's yeah. an addiction interrupter. It is remarkable a very gentle detox for getting people off of opiates and diminishing the desire to use other drugs like cocaine. We're going to learn more when we get in the clinic. Yeah. And well. I live for the day. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Deborah Mash. Head to demerex.com, D-E-M-E-R-X, or maps.org to learn more about Ivogaine. Now, over to GP for today's AMA. Was there ever anything you wanted to be besides an actor? If you didn't start Goop, what do you think you'd be gooping today? (laughs) What do you think you'd be doing today? I'm not – I think that I would have loved to go into medicine on some level. Like I would have loved to be a functional MD. I'm endlessly fascinated by the capacity for the human body to heal itself and all of the interventions, you know, old and new that we use to promote healing. And I don't know that I would have been smart enough to be a doctor, but I would have liked to maybe try. Thank you, GP. If you have your own question you want GP to answer, drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back next week for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.